You are listening to Panther Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to Making Tracks. I'm your host, Mark Newbold, and today we've got a very special episode. It's brought to you from Empire 40. It's an interview with John Morton. Now, you'll know John as Dak Raptor from The Empire Strikes Back and Bespin Boba. John's a friend of the site, we've known him for a good few years and we had the chance, myself and Mark, to sit down with him and discuss his time working on Empire for Empire 40. There's plenty of Empire 40 content coming to the site and to other shows on the Tracks radio network. So sit down and enjoy this episode as me and Mark interview John Morton at Empire 40. So we're here at Empire 40. We're here with John Morton, best known as Dak and best been Boba Fett from the Empire Strikes Back. John, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be anywhere, as Keith Richards would say. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Yeah, unusual times right now, isn't it? How have you been coping with lockdown and everything that's been going on? Well, I've been doing fine. Uh, as you folks know, I, I do a lot of writing these days. And so I'm finishing my fourth book and um, working a lot in the garden. Uh, I'm enough of an Englishman to value that, as is my wife. So uh, the garden's looking great. We're getting a fair amount of rain. So uh, that's how we do our socially distant entertaining is in our garden. But yeah, I'm working a lot on the, uh, on the book and finishing that up. And then also, as I think you know, uh, busy, busily in pre-development uh, doing this film on Duke Ellington that I've been passionate about for many years. But alas, there's no Star Wars or sci-fi and comic book conventions. So all of that's sort of virtual, uh, doing a fair amount of online stuff, uh, which is uh, available through Facebook. And I've had a a few collectors coming and we distance in the the garden and uh, I've had private signings. So I'm keeping active as much as I can. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Duke Ellington film? Yeah, in uh, 2003, I started researching a book on Duke Ellington's uh, very celebrated in jazz circles uh, uh, concert that he did at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1956, which resuscitated his career, which was pretty much on life support at that time. And the music was just so exciting. I wanted to get all the backstory as having, you know, part of my career in the entertainment business was in uh, theatrical lighting. I think Mark knows that I worked uh, with the White Light Electrics on the Rocky Horror Show, uh, the original stage show, and so I mixed uh, the sound for them. And so all of the process um, for Duke Ellington having this amazing performance, whereas a 57-year-old man, he got 77,000 people on their feet in a near riot at about 12.45 in the morning. Uh, So that really appealed to me to find out what the whole backstory was. And so I got that book published in uh, 2008, it got really good reviews. And in 2016, a um, New York producer by the name of Fred Zollo, uh, who did uh, Mississippi's Burning and the Quiz Show, had an interest. He had some time in London and said, hey, I'd like to acquire the, uh, the, the rights to uh, stage and film for this. 
And so Fred and I went back and forth for a couple of months, by which time I adapted this as a screenplay. So I had a property and he wanted to take it one way and I really wanted to take it another. So we parted ways. But by that time, you know, I had a, a good script in hand that was getting better all the time. And I started shopping it around to a lot of the people that I still knew in the business, one of whom was Robert Fox, uh, who you all might know in, in London. And Robert was not as interested as I was hopeful that he would be because it was too American a story. But, you know, once you get in the system, uh, things move along. And eventually that led me to uh, a woman named Hillary Shore, who produces a lot of um, films with Lee Daniels. Uh, she did The Butler. Uh, she worked with Lee on a film that he's uh, just completed on Billie Holiday. And... Um, then the package started coming together, and we have uh, Mercedes Ellington, who's Duke Ellington's granddaughter, uh, involved as an associate producer. So we've got all the clearances issues as far as the music goes. And we're right now in the process of um, hopefully finishing a collaboration uh, agreement with the Herbie Hans Hancock Institute, which is um, Herbie's uh, nonprofit for education purposes. But the interesting thing about them is they are the sponsor for UNESCO's International Jazz Day. So if we are able to approach with them um, a streamer like Netflix or Amazon Studios, uh, we have uh, a verbal right now, uh, which will be hopefully nailed down in the next couple of weeks, where they would agree to regard this uh, film or streaming of this film as an official event as part of the International Jazz Day uh, celebrations and streaming uh, that happen every uh, April, 20th, April 30th. So we're sort of looking that this thing might become available if we get all the pieces in place and the thing produced uh, in, say, the 2022, optimistically, or 2023 or 24 timeframe. So it's down the road. Uh, nothing's uh, nailed down in stone. Uh, but we're getting there. It, it, it just, it gets, the, the odds get better each month as we go along, but it's a lengthy process, Mark. Well, talking about the odds, which you should never talk about the odds, 40 years ago, obviously, Empire Strikes Back came out. Now, you mentioned Rocky Horror, which I think, was that 75 around about that time? Uh, it opened in October 1973 at the theatre, um, the, the Royal Court Theatre upstairs. And then it went down King's Road to the Chelsea Classic, and eventually ended up at the Chelsea Asaldo, which they called the Kings Road Theater, which was uh, right before you get to um, World's End, if you know where that is. In fact, I will say this that would, would appeal to some of the folks that know their pop history. Uh, we actually engaged with Malcolm uh, McLaren and, and his, his group, Vivian Westwood, uh, about two years into the, into, the, into the show to do all the costumes. And so Rocky was kind of part of that evolution in the mid-70s later on that you're referring to of punk. So by 1977, we were sort of joined at the hip in the punk movement as far as the fashion side goes. Hello, I'm Warwick Davis, and you're listening to Tracks. That was very much part of the zeitgeist in the mid-70s. And then Star Wars comes out in 77, more 78 in the UK, and goes nuts everywhere around the world. And then by sort of 79 time, you're making Empire, 78, 79 time making Empire, you're aware that Star Wars is this massive hit. You've already got a massive hit on your CV with Rocky Horror. So going into Empire, what was 
the general expectation amongst the cast and the crew and just the general people of what the success of this film may be? Well, I think everybody was very, very optimistic and upbeat, which is uh, 180 degrees differently from those that, that were in the first Star Wars, or at least uh, A New Hope. Um, my good friend, Tony Forrest, who you all probably know, who's the, uh, these aren't the droids we're looking for, uh, he was on that, and I met him doing A Bridge Too Far in September 76, and I also knew remotely, I knew uh, Anthony Daniels socially through um, uh, a director who was a mutual friend. And both at that time, Anthony Forrest and Anthony Daniels were really not sure what this Star Wars thing was about. They'd come off, uh, you know, this was uh, before the film was released. And so in 76, late 76, the time frame I'm talking about, nobody really knew what to think and didn't really take it seriously in England. Uh, but by 1979, I was on that film for four weeks, uh, Empire Strikes Back, in, I want to say, late March, April, in that time frame. I think we were set up for the first studio shoots after they all came back from Finza. So I'd, I, my character had already died. <laughs> That I was told when I arrived. But the feeling on the set was hugely upbeat. The morale was very high. Uh, they had an expectation, I think, that this was going to be really exciting uh, and with us a long time. I mean, Mark Hamill always talked about the original vision, at least at that time, that George had was for nine episodes. I was a little disappointed that I was already dead and therefore wouldn't go forward. But on the other hand, I felt it a great uh, opportunity uh, as uh, Skywalker's co-pilot that I would, I would have a, a character that would be remembered at least. So I was very happy. A lot of the, my peers I'd worked with before in previous films, uh, Dave Tomlin was the first assistant on. We'd worked on A Bridge Too Far, uh, Superman 2. Uh, I worked with Steve Lanning, who was the second assistant on a film with Sean Connery called Cuba. So it was like, you know, I knew these guys professionally in the film business very, very well, you know, on the crew side. And then being part of the North American acting fraternity of Canadians and, and Americans, uh, we were all very tight. There was enough film business going around. We weren't that competitive. And so we were, you know, it was always like a great opportunity to regather, kind of like it is when we go to the conventions. So, uh, you know, there was never a down moment, which isn't to say that George was under, you know, exceeding pressure. The reason why he was there on the set was, was a budget thing. I mean, he, he was not supposed to be in England all the time. And so he was getting pulled back into having to somehow work out the, you know, uh, how he was going to cut back if he could on some of the spending, which was just going out the window. Um, but we didn't experience any of that. And I have to say, giving credit to George and also Gary Kurtz, who is very underappreciated. You never got the sense that there was trouble in paradise, if indeed there were. Everything that they conveyed to the rest of us uh, came down of upbeat, um, you know, exhorting to enjoy this, do well, and as a result of their leadership, uh, if that's the right word, all the rest of us gave back, you know, 110 percent. Um, it was it was a hugely high experience. You mentioned, obviously, you're Luke's co-pilot. You're sitting in the gunner seat of the lead character of the biggest movie of all time. And you, you were aware as a young man that was a great opportunity for you. How was it working with Mark? Was he as good a guy as he comes across? Absolutely. Um, 
Mark, uh, you know, was, um, you know, he was real, which isn't to say that, that Carrie and, and Harrison, uh, they were Hollywood stars. You paid a respectful distance to both of them. In particular, I have to say, you know, Harrison Ford, he had, he copped the right attitude. You didn't cozy up to him and say, hey, man, how's it going? You know, let's, let's talk about uh, beer or something. Uh, you know, the cast with an E, I mean, it was like, no, he was up there. And I was, but with Hamill, it was not that, like that at all. Mark hung out with the guys. Uh, he shared insights the same way as any of my close buddies, like John Ratzenberger or Jack McKenzie or Gene Lipinski or the other guys that I knew very, very well over the years. You know, he was, he was a regular lad. We had a particularly close connection because we discovered very early on that we both grew up as sons of naval officers in the United States, and a particular kind of naval officer who liked serving in small ships called destroyers. And uh, they were sort of the greyhounds of the sea. And uh, Mark's father was uh, a naval officer, and uh, he had the same experience that I did in, you know, going to school for a year or so and then having to move. So we were always the new kids on the block. So we swapped war stories, if you will, about having, you know, first grade in Coronado, California, second grade in Norfolk, Virginia, third grade in Boston. I mean, uh, and so in that respect, having that commonality of coming up with that same background, you, you, you made friends very quickly. It was instinctive. And that's kind of what he was. He shared a lot without revealing uh, any of the things that were close hold. He kept on talking about this new character that he was very excited to be working with. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's, this, what's the character's name? Well, it's, um, it's Yoda. Oh, wow. Is it a humanoid or what? And he said, uh, I can't really go into it, but uh, let's say he's kind of a Kermit the Frog and uh, he lives in a swamp planet. That was uh, actually a huge reveal without revealing anything. And, and so he was, you know, I mean, he, he, he processed it carefully uh, and figured, okay, I can get away with this. Kermit the Frog on a swamp planet. Oh, okay. But he didn't say he was a Jedi, I don't remember. He didn't say that this guy had, you know, the greatest powers in the galaxy. Uh, you know, it was, but there was this new character that was being introduced that was Kermit the Frog in a, in a swamp. <laughs> Fantastic. What was your kind of day-to-day -day like on, on set? Well, there was a lot of standing around, um, quite honestly, because they, they were running horribly behind schedule because of the technical issues that they were having in many things. And then, as you know, with a film of that size, you've got so many moving parts and if something falls out, you know, then that changes the, the schedule uh, going forward. And so, well, you know, you were supposed to be here on Thursday, but I don't think we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that probably on Monday week or something. I was only scheduled to be booked for two days. And so I was on a daily rate, which was extremely generous. Um, they're not, it's not the same as if you're booked for two or three weeks. So I was on a daily rate, and because of this uncertainty of, you know, how things were going to shake out, you know, um, it was regarded as a retainer. So I went in every day for four weeks on a daily rate. So there was a lot of ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. So I was very happy. And I think probably Jeremy might have been in the same boat. What I was able to observe, um, first of all, I got to know everybody. And, you know, there was a lot of time, you know, talking to people, uh, about you know how they do their job and so forth, and you were able to see some iconic scenes um, being filmed. But one of the more fascinating things, because I regarded myself not just as an actor, but more especially as a filmmaker, 
because um, I had a script that was uh, optioned at that point. And so I was very key to just, you know, soak up everything I was seeing in, on the set. Uh, the thing that I always talk about uh, that was the most fascinating was the uh, prop work and in particular the puppetry, because this was before CGI. And so the Tauntaun, the Tauntaun was a gigantic puppet uh, on casters. Uh, so it was a platform. I remember it was about 10 feet by maybe 20. And then in the back uh, where the puppet master was operating the Tauntaun were these huge levers on two befores, very sturdy things that were connected in the wires that ran down underneath the platform and then up the legs into the Tauntaun. So, but this was uh, animated as a puppet. They were huge. And so the, the physics of this was kind of interesting to watch and the subtlety that were these eight or nine levers that this guy had that were the size of a tuba force, you know, chiseled on the end. So what I remember was the scene where you see Han Solo or Harrison Ford coming back in on the Tauntaun into the ice planet, whatever it was called, where, where the Millennium Falcon was and so forth. Uh, having been unable to find Mark you know, or, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker and dismounting the Tauntaun. So I saw this, how they did all of this in the magic of filmmaking. And that kind of stuff was absolutely fascinating. And you saw Kenny getting in and out of R2-D2. You saw Peter uh, struggling with the, uh, uh, the, the Wookiee outfit and how he had to deal with that. I mean, it was yeah. horrendously hot. If you wanted to, you had a real opportunity to, to, to see the magic of movie, movie making because you weren't being used every day. You were there in case they could. And so I was out there, you know, in the, in the sound stages all the time. The one advice I would have to those that might want to be actors in film someday, uh, if they have that opportunity, don't ever, ever, when you get tired, sit on an electrician's uh, road chest or anything of the crew. That is an absolute no-no, and you'll get in serious trouble. <laughs> I, I didn't do it, but... Uh, <laughs> you saw it happen, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, you saw some of these, these guys that, you know, thought they were great stage, stage actors, and they were, uh, but, you know, they didn't have a, a you know, a, a, chair, a chair like George and Irving and, and Mark. And so, oh, wow, there's a, you know, there's a chest I can sit on, a road box, you know, where the electrician, and, and they'd sit down on there, and you'd have these burly guys from South London coming up, oi! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you were part of a crew and you saw Carrie Fisher doing that, you'd let her off. <laughs> oh, no, that, that one you'd let pass. No, that one you'd let pass. Yeah. You're listening to Fanta Tracks. Flip through the galaxy of literature with Cannon Fodder hosts Brian Cameron, Matt Booker, Mark Newbold, and Mark Mocaster. Count me in. Spin round the rim with Desert Planet Discs. Your musical journey through the space lanes with your hosts, Carl Bayliss and Greg Robertson. The hottest tunes this side of Muff's Eyes Lake. Get the latest news, interviews, reviews, and much more on Making Tracks with your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Mocaster. Like an Ewok battle wagon out of control. Join hosts Claire Henry and a rotating panel of guest hosts for the podcast that's full of hope. hope. Planet Leia. I love you. I know. It's time to head south with the Fanta from down under. Adam O'Brien. Oh, get out, mate. Hey, gal. <laughs> Start your engines with Paul Naylor and Mark Newbold. 
as they lift the hood on starships, airspeeders, swoops, capital ships, and more from across the cosmos. And for everything in one location, daily news, reviews, interviews, podcasts, video and social media feeds, bookmark fathatracks.com for Star Wars news 24-7, 365. So, I mean, so it sounds like you've had like a really great time just looking at all the behind the scenes. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. Getting together with fr- old friends. Yeah. Making new friends. I wasn't a fanboy that, you know, uh, it's there weren't that many fanboys in England at that time. <laughs> uh, so I don't think you had quite that. Um, what you would think in retrospect. Now, that might have that, that the, it would have been a different case in the United States, because I think once this thing got um, up and running after after it was released, it just went through America like crazy. But quite honestly, Mark, I don't really remember Star Wars uh, being a, a phenomenon that was just off the charts in the UK. Now, it might have been if you were in a grammar school or what have you, but where I was at that time as a 30-ish old guy, I was more focused on my own career and what I was doing in my next job. So I, you know, I wasn't into the sort of fan stuff. And I, and I will say I've said it, I think not being a science fiction person, and I've, I've talked a lot with Jim Lucino, James Lucino about this, who's a great friend and, and a neighbor, actually. He was a science fiction enthusiast. So his take on all of this was a bit different. I, I was not a reader of science fiction. So therefore, I was more following what Francis Ford Coppola was doing and uh, Paul Schrader. I was more taken with The Godfather uh, 1 and 2 and Taxi Driver and kind of what the New York actors were doing with their films uh, that were a little darker. But, you know, I saw them as sort of auteur things that were in the uh, kind of art cinema. And remember, I was very, very steeped in London theater. And in particular, kind of London theater, not not uh, the West End, but uh, what was going on at the National, the Royal Court in particular, the Roundhouse, um, the Royal Shakespeare Company. I did a lot of work with them. So I was kind of focused on that sort of stuff. So my take on Star Wars, as I would say, was probably the same with somebody like um, uh, Dennis Lawson uh, is, uh, you know, dare I preach heresy was probably it was it was another job. But what I did see that was exceptional about it, I go back to what I said in the beginning, is that, you know, having that art film predisposition, my assumption is that small is always beautiful, that big isn't. But Star Wars broke the mold on that. Star Wars was, was one of the most amazing experiences I could ever appreciate in terms of morale and just pure joy and the way you were treated. And that, I go back to George and Gary Kurtz. They treated all their people in such a way that because from top, this is how we're going to produce films. That's the way everybody else treated each other. And my favorite example was the tea lady. The tea lady at Elves Tree, whatever her name was, God bless her, uh, you know, was, was a woman that would go around with the tea, tea trolley, you know, all the time. And her job was not just to serve tea, but it was like, hello, darling. All right, you're having a wonderful time, and it's marvelous, just marvelous. She was so excited and was so, you know, conveying her enthusiasm and love for her people and what we were all doing, which speaks volumes. 
because as you know, in the 1970s, we were all, you know, union. And your first loyalty was to the union. You know, you were always conscious about your contract and your work to rule and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the bosses were the bad guys. But there was none of that in Star Wars. And which would explain, um, you know, why it was that Jeremy got his two days off to, to go shoot another film. And I came in and did covered for Jeremy. That was all part of it. You know, if the unions were involved or the agents and what have you, that would never have happened. We were going to ask you about that. I mean, that's an interesting. I can see Mark's got a, a certain helmet over his uh, over his right shoulder as well. Yeah, that's my 501st cleared Empire Strikes Back Boba Fett helmet. So, John, tell us more about how you stood in for Jeremy Bullock as Boba Fett. Jeremy and I are the same size, um, so I could fit into the costume. Uh, but more especially, because I had worked with Dave Tomlin and Steve Lanning and Roy Button in... Um, two, in Steve's case, three previous films, they knew I was the kind of guy who was a team player and do what, do what needed to be done. And I really cut my teeth with them on a bridge too far, which was, uh, you know, you were doing stunts, you were doing things that actors don't normally do. And they complain if they are having to do that because they don't want to break their teeth or something like that. To give you an example, that was Ryan O'Neill's big deal. Um, so they knew I, you know, I, I was that kind of guy. And, and so was Jack McKenzie and, and some of the others that uh, I got to be very good friends with. Um, but the thing is, which is why I think Jeremy was also on a, on, a, on a daily rate and not on a contract, but I don't, I, I don't know. I, you'd have to ask him. Um, he might have thought he was only going to be working for two days, but his scenes stretched on. And suddenly he got an opportunity to, to do two days work in another film. Uh, he presented that up the chain ultimately to George Lucas. And George's attitude was, we don't want to get in the way of your career. We'll make it work. You go off and do your two days and we'll, we'll somehow make it happen. And sure enough, they had, they had scheduled to do that scene in the carbon freezing chamber and, uh, you know, outside, the, you know, in the, in the corridor with Darth Vader. And um, somebody had to cover for Jeremy. So they came to me. And in my situation, I was, my contract read uh, Rebel Pilot. Okay, if I wanted to be uh, a Burke about this, uh, I could have said, oh, sorry, mate. You know, um, my contract is a Rebel Pilot. You're going to have to talk to my agent. And you're also going to have to talk to the union. You know, you see what I'm saying? You know. Either way around, Jeremy could have played it that way or George could have, you know, forced him, you know, but it never occurred to me. I just said, and I know, I think the, the, the pitch was given to, by Steve, Steve Lanning. I said, sure. I had no idea who Boba Fett was other than, a, you know, a costume character that was sort of like a stormtrooper. I had no idea the nuance of that stuff. But that's what I mean, is that, you know, the expectation and the willingness of people like me and, and, and others, you know, because of the example that was being set, that was probably two, maybe three weeks into the time I was on, is that, no, this is what you do to make this film happen. Sure. And why not? You know, it's, you know, I'm going to be working with, with Dave and, and Billy D, and, you know, and all I'm doing is just standing there. <laughs> and 
I have a line, but I don't have to worry about the line. So you, you end up in that outfit, that Boba Fett armor, and as the years go by, that character becomes the character that we know now and just blossoms as a as a pop culture sort of icon. That must, in retrospect, must have been one of the best decisions you ever made to be involved with that character. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was in 2010 when I came back onto the... Uh, convention circuit because I took seven years off because life got very busy in the civilian world. Uh, when I got booked to do, I probably saw you there, uh, Celebration 5. They brought back all the Bobas mm. and, they, and they said, we want to bring back the Boba Fetts. And uh, so I was there signing next to Alan on one side and then me and then Dickie Beer, the stunt guy, and then Daniel and Jeremy. The picture that I had behind me was was Dak, uh, but I then realized what a huge deal it was because about 50% of the autographs that I was signing at Celebration Five were for Boba Fett, not for Dak. So that, then then by that time, and then I got inducted into the Mandos, the Ma- Mandalorian Mercs. Yeah, they really they they really suit me well. I mean, they're uh, they're such pirates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. And so, um, speaking as one Mando Merc to another, how did you find wearing the Boba Fett costume? I I can't really say that it was uh, a problem because I didn't have a lot of movement, um, and people always ask me that. I don't remember that there was a problem with uh, you know eye lines. Because um, I wasn't challenged. Now, in case of Dickie Beer, that's a whole other story because he was responsible, the, st- the stunt guy. He had to do a lot of movement. And um, I, I, I quite frankly don't remember if the jetpack was uh, styrofoam or whether it was something more solid. I don't remember that being an issue. But what I do remember was that the piece, the blaster, was uh, hideously uh, unbalanced. So, as an actual uh, combat weapon, um, that would not have been very good. And I can't remember if the stock, you know, or the butt was, was uh, heavier, but I remember at the end of the shooting, one of my biceps was just shot completely because I was, you know, it, it just wasn't balanced. And that's the only thing that I remember. Something in there was the real deal and it was heavy. <laughs> yeah, I think part part of the, um, the blaster was actually an old World War I flare gun. I think you're right. Yeah. And so, therefore, it, it, if it were if it wasn't the stock, it was the uh, the barrel and, and the gubbins, and it was heavy. Let me tell you, because trying to aim something like that when you're in combat, it, no, that would not work. I'm Anthony Daniels, and you are listening to Fanther Tracks. Well done. Did you get much instruction either from Evan Kirshner or even from Jeremy about how to play play the character? Yes, uh, it was from Jeremy. And, um, you know, I like to credit Jeremy for actually making Boba Fett what he is. I, he might have gotten uh, direction from, uh, from Kirshner, from, from George, on what Boba Fett was all about. Uh, but no, the night before uh, I was to, to shoot, uh, you know, he was going off, uh, you know, uh, for the day. And I went into his dressing room. I said, Jeremy, how am I going to play this character? I mean, what, you know, give me some... Uh, some insights because nobody had said anything to me about, you know, what it was all about. He said, very simple. Think Clint Eastwood, a fistful of dollars, do everything slow and menacing. That was it. So that's the way I played it. When they talk about uh, Mandalorian and what have you, they talk about 
the Clint Eastwood uh, influence uh, on the character Boba Fett. I can't really say if that's what was told Jeremy, and I don't know, you know, from Rinsler's books or anything, I, I haven't read that one on Empire, whether that was what was conceived. Uh, and so Jeremy picked it up from that. I like to believe actually it was Jeremy's interpretation. Uh, so I always credit him until somebody comes up and says, no, he got that from Lucas himself. Now I will say this, Jeremy always likes to tell at the, at the um, conventions um, the impact that uh, he had when he went out onto the set uh, to have approval for, for wardrobe on the costume. So he gets fitted in the, in the wardrobe and then, as is the norm, uh, when a new character is being introduced, uh, he was taken out into the soundstage, presumably where the Millennium Falcon was, to, you know, by the, uh, the wardrobe people so that George could look it over and say, yes, and, you know, okay, that's good. And Jeremy said he walked out there and there was the typical action that was happening as they were setting up another shot and people, and suddenly various people saw him and everything stopped and he's just walking you know, and what he said was there was this, you know, sense of like, holy smoke, who is that? What? Whoa, that looks really awesome. And so Jeremy said that that was when he realized that the Boba Fett character was all about the costume, you know, the armor. But between the actual armor, the costume itself, and Jeremy's decision or Jeremy's, uh, you know, following the Clint Eastwood example and doing everything slow and menacing and what I attempted to do, um, you know, that's what you had. This Boba Fett that was just uh, very menacing looking and moved kind of woo. But it's that kind of thing about Boba where it's, you know, there's not a lot of uh, demonstration. It's just that when he's called upon to move, it's decisive, and he does it. Yeah, I always think Boba Fett, when he speaks, he uses the old Yorkshire word economy, least words possible to say the most things. So it's definitely definitely a Fett thing. When you look back now, looking back now 40 years on, what's your sort of takeaway from Empire now? What's your sort of memory and feeling for the whole project when you sort of reminisce? Well, I, I you know, it's uh, as my wife often says, uh, you know, about uh, living into things. I've lived into Boba Fett, and uh, because you know the fans have an expectation, I, I live. I've lived into Dak, and 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 being there for the fans to you know continue it. So uh, you know, the fans have told me, in their view, maybe they're being you know flattering or whatever, but they say that Empire Strikes Back is their favorite, and I think. Probably that's true. And I think there's good reason for that. So uh, I'm very, very proud and humbly thankful that uh, I got to be in that film for four weeks and that I'm uh, called back to do things like this with you all and to write for Bantha Tracks and, you know, all the things that Star Wars has done for me. It's a wonderful legacy. It's not something that I expected or even sought. I sort of inherited it. I wish I were more pre had been more appreciative of that at the time. But as we all are in our late 20s and early 30s, we're all eager and hungry to get on with our own business. And Star Wars wasn't my own business. So I had my own agenda that I was really pursuing and it was front and center. So, but that's, that's part of being a human being. But I will say that I think 
what happens nowadays uh, is that the people that get brought into Star Wars, they know how fortunate they are. So everybody that gets cast in a Star Wars film or gets selected to be part of the crew, many of them are already fans. In fact, it seems like most of them are, or they claim to be. And I think of the guys that, uh, you know, like Brian um, Herring and uh, Lee Towersley and uh, Derek Arnold. You know, all those guys work in the creature effects. I mean, they're really into it. And they're the Jim Hensons of this new generation. And, uh, you know, what a great bunch of guys. So that's a little different. I, don't, I, I can't say what it would have been like for Return of the Jedi, but certainly for um, New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, uh, I don't think you had people coming in just going, oh, I'm so gobsmacked. I'm, I'm doing Star Wars. It wasn't quite like that. But by Empire Strikes Back, all the crew in the pops department, the props and uh, special effects and what have you, the guys, you know, they, they had great pride. A lot of them came uh, to Star Wars from having experience with uh, Stanley Kubrick on 2001. And so they had that same kind of uh, skill set as craftsmen and women uh, that uh, Lee and, uh, and Derek and uh, Brian have. Their, their backgrounds are phenomenal. If you, you know, scratch beneath the surface and see how they all came together. Paul Casey is another one from a variety of disciplines. And they're kind of writing the, the script for where that's all going to go in the future. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Making Tracks. If you want to be a part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit Fantatracks.com or check out the Fantatracks app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile device. You can reach out to us and send in your listeners' questions by emailing radio at Fantatracks.com. Comment, like and share on any of our social media feeds at Fantatracks. And be sure to subscribe, leave a review. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your podcast or smart speaker of choice. And as always, thanks to James Semple for composing our Fantatracks intro, Adam O'Brien for our Making Tracks opening music and Mark Daniel and Vanessa Marshall for our voiceovers. We'll see you next time here on Making Tracks. Coming up next on Fanta Tracks Radio, it's another episode of Making Tracks.